Welcome to the 2S Podcast with Gage and Mike. This is Gage, the philosopher. And this is Mike, the farmer. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the 2S Podcast. Uh, we just want to take a brief minute to apologize for not uploading yesterday. We kind of had some stuff going on with Father's Day and everything. And Gage here was under the weather. So we weren't able to get our episode out. So today we're going to try and do something a little different. We're going to do a two-part episode here on the Knights Templar, also known as the Poor Fellow Soldiers of Christ and of the Temple of Solomon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Our, uh, that's just, just such a long title. <laughs> it is. It's a very long title. It's a good thing they decided to shorten it to the Knights Templar. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, before I kick into that, yeah, the first episode, this is going to be just... A general overview. Nothing super in-depth. Just get an idea. Hopefully more than what you had before. And our second one, we'll get into more more detail of the history, but also some of the conspiracies that fall around it of... Like, are they still around today? Right, dun, dun, dun. and what, what kind of events have they possibly been a part of? Like, why, why does it matter if they're still around? things about relics holy grail all that yeah i'll say if you think you think the name's bad that way you should hear me try and pronounce it in latin and i'm not going to let's hear it i'd rather not everybody wants to hear you (laughs) everybody wants to hear you pronounce it papyrus camillotonus christi templicus salomonici or some shit yeah, sure. Whatever that is. That was good. That was pretty smooth. <laughs> sure. We'll go uh, with that. <laughs> All right. So the Knights Templar, very basic first liner. They were established in 1119, recognized by the Pope in 1129, and ended in 1307 and ended officially by the Pope in 1312. And that is it. That is all you need to know. <laughs> <laughs> well, one interesting fact about them that I, I thought was their max max of people that were in their organization mm-hmm. was fifteen to 20,000, okay? But, which is weird because you think, because, yeah, that sounds like a lot, but only about 10% of them were actually knights. Right, they had two orders, so to speak. They had well, the actual the, knights. The, the knights hospitaller wasn't wasn't part of those. Well, not not orders like like uh, ranks. Not oh, rank. okay, okay, okay. Yeah, you had the knights that would do the battle or protecting the pilgrimage, and then you had staff. Yeah, so like to speak. yeah, and logistics and. Because the big reason of how they started, was from what to I protect. understand, was. Uh, Really, just this one particular guy wanted to protect pilgrims that it were was, traveling uh, to the Holy Land. It was Hugh, Hugh Jess de Payens. Yeah, I'm glad you tried to say that and not me. 
Yeah, he wanted to guide and protect Christians that were traveling to holy sites or relics and whatnot from bandits being killed, getting things stolen from them. Yeah, because after the First Crusade in 1099, when they captured Jerusalem, they they had Jerusalem, but they didn't have all the surrounding area. Right. So they would be get you know robbed by bandits and stuff like that. That's a very noble thing to want to do. Dedicate your life to protecting people, and he they ended up taking on kind of like roles of like monks in a way of they had they were celibate. Well, most of them were. Mm. Um, if you were married, you had to get your wife's permission. Yes. yes. And you could not be in any debt. You couldn't mm. own any money. So that they, they had these sort of rules and stuff like a monastic community would. Well, it was very it. ordered and strict. Well, that's why like their, uh, their mascot or whatever you want to call it was two knights on a, one horse. Because they literally had... Had nothing. I mean, they were they sold and got rid of everything they had. Right. That was one of their vows, a vow of poverty. Yes. So it was the organization per se made money, but the men themselves did not. Right. And and the, <clears throat> from what I read, a lot of the ways they started to get their wealth and ability to do things was through. Um, donations because people really liked appreciated what they were doing and they would give them not just money and stuff but they would give them land horses yes. equipment yeah because they uh it wasn't until 11 was it 11 20 i do 11 yeah 11 20 when the pope recognized them as a as a uh christian order i guess or whatever that then that's when all the money started flooding in because people were donating to them and everything because they were recognized by the recognized official. Yes. So yeah, there was a lot of donations and there was, you know, and then of course there was war booty, you know, Mm -hmm. they go, they conquer somewhere, conquer a town because they took part in what I say, 22 battles. A lot of them. There's a, yeah, I, it's a list about a mile freaking long, but they they were uh, they were shock troops is what they were. Mm-hmm. So, so when at at that point in time, there was not a whole lot of uh, heavy cavalry in the Middle East because it was so hot. A lot of their cavalry was light cavalry, and this is getting to some history nerd shit, but I just know about it, so mm-hmm. I, I would like to explain it to the people listening. But they. Uh, a lot of the cavalry at the time was light cavalry, so it was mainly used for skirmishing, maybe archers on horseback, you know, go and harass the enemy and then leave, just basically right. to slow attack, them down. Attack, run, attack, run. Yes, where the Knights Templar were a heavy cavalry, so they were armored, their horses had armor, you know, everything. And what their job was is to smash into the enemy ranks and just demolish it. So they are like the tanks. <laughs> yeah, essentially, yes. They would they would charge into him, and they're and you had to keep tight order because that's the only way it would work. Is you had to keep a real tight order and just smash into the enemy line, become a big unit, yes. a single unit. So that that's where their big thing was. And there's I I don't have any of the exact in front of me, but there are accounts of them defeating larger Muslim armies just from a heavy cavalry charge. 
because hmm. that was the big thing. And then they also later on they de- uh, when the enemies the Muslims started figuring it out. You know, they had the fighting march and all this. That it's a big rabbit hole you go down about military formations and how they changed and just the way that they fought in the Holy Land versus the way they fought in Europe was a completely different style of fighting. I mean, it was the culture itself was just completely different because people from Europe looked down on the people the over in the Holy Lands because they would marry the local populace and not, you know, so they were, you know, not fully European. They were mixed or whatever you want to call it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there, there was a lot going on at the time when it comes to all that. Hmm. Yeah, makes you wonder what the... Yeah, because the Knights of Templar, they were, they were all over. They weren't just one specific area. They'd get recruits mm-hmm. from all over the lands. Yeah, well, they they started off there in Jerusalem, just being, you know, going out and protecting travelers that come across from through uh, the Byzantine Empire, you know, through Constantinople, which is now modern day Istanbul. And that that's where their headquarters was, right? Jerusalem. Yes. At least initially. It was initially, yes. It was Jerusalem initially. And then they, uh, <coughs> towards the decline of the Templar, I think it moved to Antioch, if I remember. Or, or Acker, Acker, I think maybe. It was, uh. Yeah. A C R E, Acre, Acker. Acre, Acker, everyone pronounce it. But, yeah, they moved it to, uh, to Acker during the decline of the Templar because it just. Jerusalem wasn't safe. Saladin was unifying all the Muslim tribes and they were having bigger armies and the Templars were facing getting defeated more often and everything like that. So it just And that's where they get called the the like the Temple of Solomon was because in Jerusalem that's where their headquarters was, was in a big building commonly referred to as the Temple of Solomon. Yeah, because it was, it was part of the royal palace, if I remember correctly, because King Baldwin II was the king of Jerusalem at the time, who, uh, who was the one that approved uh, Hugues de Payens to form this order. And then I believe it was Pope Innocent, the, Pope Innocent II, I believe. Or, yeah, Pope Innocent II, he's the one that... Uh, initiated them as a order of the cap of the Christian church. Hmm. So now they also, the one thing that was wild about it is in 1135 Pope Innocent the second, and uh, he put out a papal monetary donation order. So that's how all that money started going. So they told telling people like, Hey, you can donate to this organization. And so there's one way how they started getting their money and stuff like that. And then they also got in 1139, got a papal bull, which means they didn't have to follow any laws, local laws, because the only person they answered to was the Pope. Mm, That'd be nice. They didn't answer to nobody else. The Pope was their, so the grant, you know, the lower enlisted. They were above the law. Yeah, the lower enlisted answered to the Grand Master. And the Grand Master answered nobody but the Pope. Didn't answer to the King of Jerusalem. Didn't answer to anybody out there. Just the Pope. Right, and the Kings and the Pope were all close ties and relations. 
Well, so it's almost like it was just understood. Well, back at that time, when you were king, you wanted close relations to the with the pope because if you had close relation with the church, then you had you had a more close relation with the people because if the pope backed you, then it was like all the people were like, oh, okay, he's backed by the pope, he's an all right guy, and even finances too. Yeah, which that's a good thing you were actually telling me about today, about the finance, the how the Knights Templar were into the, finance. Well, yeah, that that started with you know when they became official, and started getting all the donations and money and land. They didn't just take it and leave it. They started investing it, doing things with it. They started vineyards and just started making even more and more and more. And then, yeah, that's when they started to uh, do their own banking, which played a major influence in the modern-day banking. They were kind of the experts of getting things to work. Yeah, because then they, make, they made money off that, too, didn't they? Uh, yeah, I'd assume. Because they had, like, some... I don't know if they called it interest, but... Well, they had, I think they had some sort of fee for safeguarding your money type deal. Right. And they became so entrusted and just respected because, you know, it's this innovative banking system and it worked and they'd protect yeah. it that kings or rich people. And this is that's also how they started to get their own castles and everything was mm-hmm. either, you know, the donation of lands and the money to do it. But even kings and other people would entrust them with actual treasures and artifacts. and yeah, things. Absolutely. So they guarded that. And that kind of will lead into our part two yeah i wouldn't didn't want to say nothing because (laughs) there's there's some things that they say the knights templar have but we're going to save that for next week because i'll I'll get going on it and i don't want to ruin. just remember they were entrusted with treasures and artifacts yeah very because of their banking system very precious artifacts even some say don't even exist but where's the idea even come from though (laughs) yeah (laughs) so but their banking system was it's something really we take for granted today, you know, how we have different, there's different banking locations all across the country or across the world. Like say you have first financial, you know, you know, you're, there's not only one first financial bank. There's one, there's one in, you know, Indy and there's one in Lawrenceburg, you know what I mean? And you can go from drive from Indy, go to Lawrenceburg and go to the fifth, third bank in Lawrenceburg and get money out. Well, right. their their banking system was basically the same way, except it was old school. So you'd, you'd go to, the, like, say, let's say Paris, and you would deposit your money to the Knights Templar there before you headed to the Holy Lands. And then you would go, well, there's probably a better city that's closer, but we're, we're going to go with that one, for example. But, you you know, you deposit your money there, and then you get a piece of paper with a, uh, a seal on it, that kind of encapsulate the envelope and you didn't open it. Well, as long as you had that, that paper, when you arrived at the Holy land, like say Jerusalem or Acker or, or wherever, and you went to a Knights Templar bank per se, and you hand them that letter and they open it up and they see it it's like, Oh, okay. And they'd give you the monetary amount that was on the paper back to you. Yep. Which is something today we don't think of that we, we can just go wherever and go to the ATM and, but it is kind of like the same concept. Your money's here, but you got your note. Mm-hmm. You, know, you call it your notes or whatever. And well, if it's been that official seal, 
then it's valid over here because yeah. they know it went through that. They know well, it's been confirmed you have that money. Well, and that was the thing from what I understand reading about it was that the, the seal had to be unbroken. So if you broke that seal... You they, messed with it. Yeah, you messed with it. And they weren't going to trust it. But as long as it was fine in, in the way it was supposed to be and you dropped it off, and they would give you what monetary value was wrote down because that's how much money you deposited at. wonder how often them seals broke when you're traveling for days or weeks. Well, you got to remember the paper back then was a lot different than we got now. It wasn't real slick and like now, so like a wax. It was probably pretty flexible. Well, that and I'm sure they, they it wasn't just a wax seal. I'm sure they took a cord or something and wrapped it and then wax sealed over top of that. Yeah, that'd be curious. Which, but it was... Almost a thousand years ago, you know, eight, nine hundred years ago, we ain't going to have one yep. survive because it's all going to be rotten and back into the ground. Yeah. But they weren't dumb. They knew what would work. And oh, absolutely. Work. Yeah, that, that, because uh, I, I didn't know that until we were doing research with the banks and how they really set up the foundations of a banking system and internationally, really. Yeah, because it wasn't just in Jerusalem. I mean, you had people coming from all across Europe <coughs> to go on these crusades. Ma- mainly from, in the early days, mainly from France and uh, Germany and blah, blah, blah. Which, if you ever read anything on the Templars, and you'll hear a lot of the local sources, they called them all Franks. Because initially there were so many French that they just started calling them the Franks. So whether you were from England, Germany, Belgium, Prussia, Germany, whatever, they called you a Frank. Mm-hmm. But, so you had all them banks across Europe that was the Knights Templar. Because Knights Templars were huge in, Paris, in uh, France. Right. That's, that's where it was the largest, right? Yeah. There in England seemed to be. Because then you had, like, towards the end of it, you had a different order popping up in in Germany, which did the Teutonic Knights and stuff like that. So, I mean, there was, you had branches of it even before, but they weren't part of it. I mean, it was just... A mock of it. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. But for... People trying to do the same thing. Yeah, but it was in a different area. and it, But it was for the same reason. Cause, but that's a whole... That can be a whole other episode about the Teutonic Knights. Because that was for a crusade against the... Basically, the pagan tribes up there with russia and Hmm. on the borderlands of russia like lithuania estonia stuff like that yeah well one thing the one last thing to add into the banking that plays a major role i think and how they came came to end why they were shut down was when they were getting so big on the money even um they would lend money to rulers and nobles yep so they're your loans they're giving out loans so to speak mm-hmm. and then they're indebted to them yeah that was uh so they're in that way they're gaining power they got something to hang over these nobles heads well that was a big thing with the uh the whatchamacallit the king of france at the time king philip the fourth he uh he owed a lot of money to the Knights Templar and it, it said that the reason they were dissolved was because of heresy and this and that and we'll touch more on that next week but 
the the running theory that historians believe nowadays is more along the lines that King Philip trumped these charges to get out of debt. Right. But if I remember correctly, the way it all happened was that the Knights Hospitaller took over everything from the Knights Templar after it was dissolved because there was a big, there was a, a struggle there. Cause actually towards the end of the Templar, like right before King Philip started raising seven kinds of hell about everything, the uh, Pope, I think it was Pope Clement wanted to take the Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitaller and combine them and make one, one order when either side was having anything about it. So just so then the Knights Templar came up on the chopping block and so it just seemed like there's a lot of a lot of coincidences, I guess you would say. A lot of things of why people would want them out. Yeah. And you think you're gaining popularity with the people, you're gaining a lot of land, a lot of property, farmings, uh, you're making all sorts of money, now rulers are in debt to you. Mm-hmm. Well, now you just got all sorts of power and well you don't want that so yeah why not spread rumors of oh heresy they're accused of homosexuality all sorts of things and one of, one of the big things that led the common because you're trying to get the common people to turn against them is their initiation rights was a big mystery of when you become reach a certain level to be a part of to be a knight what's that initiation phase and that was the biggest thing that secrecy that that haziness of people didn't know these rumors were spreading and it grew a distrust yes absolutely i mean because they say that the way the rumors of heresy and everything got started was a temp a templar that was shunned from the order or ousted from the order, had discussed with King Philip the Fourth of France about all these supposed charges of heresy and whatever else. Now, one thing that is odd about it is that when all this went down and all the Templars were arrested... It was on Friday, October, Friday the 13th of October in 1307, which it's probably not the origin of the popular stories about Friday Friday the the 13th, 13th. but it is kind of one of them things like you think like, oh man, you know. It stands out of, yeah, you know, what was it maybe a precursor to Friday the 13th being a big deal? Yes, because I mean, it was... Because it was, it was in France where this happened. It wasn't all across the board. And France is where all the all the ones were persecuted at and tortured, and got all these forced confessions, forced confessions and everything like that out. Of them. So the rest of the order didn't face that sort of scourge, but the order was still dissolved, nonetheless. Especially if the major majority of you are in France, and that's what's being persecuted. Well, that was the reason France was targeted. Well. For and then from my understanding, King Henry the Fourth collaborated with the Pope 
Because yeah. if you got the Pope, the church, to turn against them, well, then you got the people to turn against them because their allegiance is to the church, to the Pope. Yeah, and so that's, that's how they ended up doing it. And then, But King, King Philip went on his own when he went and rounded them up. That was kind of a thing, but the Pope didn't stop him was the... Right. And it's actually... Philip actually threatened military action against the Vatican if the Pope didn't comply. Hmm. And at the time, France was like the top fucking dog in Europe. You didn't, you know, they were... And the Knights Templar pretty much was their army. No. Unless you were to... No, you had had the the Royal French Army, but, I mean, France was just a military power at the time. France actually used to be a very, very strong military culture. I mean, like, the Knights Templar was, like, the church's military, so to speak. Yeah, and, and a lot of them did come from France, so... Yeah. I mean, France just had a good culture of, I guess, fighting, you know, being a... They had their time. Yeah, they did. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't all, like, World War Two, But, now, uh... This is interesting. I don't know if you know about this or not. So there is a an article called the Chinon Parchment that was dated the 17th to 20th of August, 1308. And it was discovered in the Vatican Secret Archives by Barbara Frail. Because it, it had been placed in the wrong filing cabinet or whatever in 1628. Now, what's cool about this is it's a record of the trial of the Templars that shows Clement absolved the temper the Templars of all heresy in 1308 before formally disbanding the order in 1312. And there was two of these parchments. One was in August 17th, and one was on August 20th. So it was and saying it, that the heresy and all that those claims were false. It just said they were absolved of heresy. So that means the Pope basically forgave them, absolved their sins of heresy mm-hmm. or whatever you want to call it. Then there was one on the 20th of August that was addressed to the King Philip of France, mentioning that the Templars had, that all Templars had, that had confessed to heresy were restored to the sacraments and to the unity of the church. So would that lead in the way that there actually was heresy? Well, that almost to me sounds suspicious as there was actually none. They were just using it at the time and then filed this paperwork in secret because nobody knew about it until 2001. Except for, well, the, this, the first one was, uh, wasn't discovered until 2001. The one where it talked about... Uh, God damn it. Talked about absolve the Templars of all heresies. That one wasn't known about till 2001. The second one wasn't discovered until 1751. So they were both years, you know, years after all this happened. Yeah, at least 400 years. Yeah, at least. So they at least kept it under wraps for that long. And then, and then the current position of the Roman Catholic Church is that the medieval prosecutions of the Knights Templar was unjust and that nothing was inherently wrong with the order or its rule. 
They also say that Pope Clement was pressed into his actions by the magnitude of the public scandal and by the dominating influence of King Philip IV, who was Clement's relative. Because back then, kings and popes could be relatives. Right. Very easily. Yeah. Yeah, so you could look at it from that view that they were tried before and they were proven genuinely innocent. They were pardoned. And then later in the way, when they actually decided they wanted to get rid of them. They were pardoned a year later. So all that happened in like March of 1307. Hmm. or Or October of 1307. And then about August, well less than a year, so August, they were already pardoned. And that was after the fact that they're all well, after they're all dead and whatever, mm. and then four years after that, the order was dissolved. I gotcha. Yeah, that's suspicious. Very suspicious. So it really makes we you. We parted them too late. Sorry, guys. Yeah, could have yeah. still oh, been around. Oh no, some new evidence just came up, guys. Hmm. We're sorry. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to save those suspicions for part two. Yeah, absolutely. We don't want to give too much away. But it's just, it's amazing to think because back then everything was just more corrupt anyway, which we all, well, I wouldn't say more corrupt, but it's just, it's amazing looking back on it now how people were like, just let it go. But I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, well, with social media and technology we have, it's easier to get information out to everybody a lot quicker and grow a crowd against it yeah as opposed to being in a town or village and shouting it on the street and then you get killed well yeah that's true too. shut down a lot easier and quicker well it's also kind of weird too to think that back in the day you know a ruler of a country and the pope were relatives like that's an that's a wild concept to think of but rule together yeah but back then that's how it was i mean it Becoming Pope was not always just how it is now. It's a big ceremonial thing, which it was back then, but... It developed. Yeah, but back then it was who you know. Yeah. Eh, is it still, though? Just just under the table. Yeah, it might be. And that's a very good possibility. That's a different conspiracy episode. Yes, that's a little (laughs) bit different. Back to the Knights Templar. I mean, it's one of the things we we want you guys to do your own research on it too. Because it is a very interesting history. Especially for me, being in the more in like the uh, battle part of it. Because I'm a big history nerd when it comes to that shit. So... There's actually accounts of uh, how we were talking earlier, how I was looking for a uh, an example of how a shock cavalry, shock troops can turn the tide of a battle. Mm-hmm. One example was during the Battle of Mont Montgisard, where 500 Templars helped a couple thousand infantry defeat Salatin's army of 26,000 soldiers. I mean, it's sort of just the shock of heavy cavalry can be. I'd imagine it throws the whole regime off balance and you got a big hole somewhere. It breaks the order up. Yeah. Because back then, the only way you made progress was 
if you kept rank and file, you kept shoulder to shoulder, you and you fought as one unit. You go throwing a thousand pounds of horse and rider and whatever else in through there. It really uh, fucks shit up. <laughs> Yeah. So. One one last little interesting thing I thought about this whole thing was um, that most recruits were in their early to mid-20s. Yeah. Doing all that in your mid-20s. That makes sense, though. I mean... Because you got to think back then, your average lifespan, if you made 60, you rolled, you know. It wasn't like nowadays, so, I mean, that that's a, but because you're by 20s, your mid-20s back then, you were a matured. Right, yeah, no, that's just, society's different. Yeah. Now, now you don't got to mature till after college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, now, one thing I wanted to, my last thing I want to put in is that one one thing that helped the Templars kick off was a uh, church icon at the time, which was St. Bernard of Clairvaux. He was kind of the spokesperson for the Templars. And he kind of, he talked very highly of them all the time. And he was one of the reasons because he was outperforming miracles or whatever. And people, you know, watch that shit. So as soon as he said something about the Templars, he's like, Oh man, he's got you know, which is how he became to be the patron saint of the Templar Order. Hmm. So he was actually alive at the time when they when they were founded, and after he died and became a saint, he became the saint of the Knights Templar Order. So he supported them. Yes, I, I just thought that was a pretty interesting fact to think that there was the saint, the patron saint of the order, was actually alive at the at the, or at the time when the order was founded. Yeah. That was pretty pretty wild. Hmm. Do quotes? Hmm. We can uh, we, we we skipped our quotes. Yeah. We're kinda wanting to do a quote. I I really did anyway because speaking of the Saint Bernard of Clairvaux yeah, that's what made me realize we skipped our quotes. <laughs> <laughs> we kinda wanted I kinda wanted to have this quote from him and I think it's a pretty decent quote. It ain't too bad. But it's probably the longest quote I've ever had so far and probably the longest for a while because I don't like to read. So it goes, There are those who seek knowledge for the sake of knowledge. That is curiosity. There are those who seek knowledge to be known by others. That is vanity. There are those who seek knowledge in order to serve. That is love. I like that. It is, I, I thought it was a pretty good quote when I stumbled upon it. I mean, you got seeking knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Which is just being generally curious. Right. And, and, and it'd almost be like, you know, if you look at it from a symbolic or religious point of view, it's like that's that's your idol, so to speak, is knowledge. That's what you're, you know, if you're taking it to an extreme, your obsession, knowledge. And then if you're doing it just to impress others, well, then you're making an idol of yourself because you're just worried about your own image. Yeah. 
100%. But if you're gaining knowledge for the sake of somebody else, then it has nothing to do with you. You're being selfless. Which kind of goes... a higher order. Which kind of goes into what we're going to talk about next week with the Knights Templar. You know, they gained, you know, supposedly this forbidden knowledge or whatever you want to call it <clears throat> and all these things. But they were using it to help people. So, I mean, it it, it kind of suits it. It's kind of one reason I liked it too. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. So, just something for you guys to get out there to chew on. Kind of look over it. Do you have a quote this week? I do. Um, I wouldn't say it's my most interesting or best quote. <laughs> it's from Epictetus. He's uh, talking to his students. Never call yourself a philosopher nor talk a great deal among the unlearned about theorems, but act conformably to them. Thus, at an entertainment, don't talk how persons ought to eat, but eat as you ought. So pretty much what he's saying is don't use reason and logic to try and say how something's wrong or right or how to live. Don't even worry about it. Don't talk about it or try and debate it just be an example so like joe dirt dirt said fucking just keep on keeping on yeah just kind of like they say lead, <laughs> you know, lead by example yeah just lead like, by example you know and they'll if, if what you're doing's right then they'll see the fruits of it and be convinced just by how your life is as opposed to oh i won the argument yeah they look to you for example rather than Oh man, look how he's living his life, piece of crap. You know, they're like, bam, it looks like he's got his shit together. Nope. That's a good quote, too. I like that. Eh, not too shabby. Not I still shabby. like to argue and debate. True. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shit. Uh, All right, well, stay tuned for uh, more in depth next week and uh, sort of the mystery around the Knights Templar. So make sure next week you have your tin foil hats ready. It's about to get weird. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all take care. <laughs>